Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 82. From humble but happy beginnings in North London, Ray Perman has been a popular and much admired figure in the Scottish business world since permanently moving to Edinburgh in 1975. The former Scotland correspondent for the Financial Times went on to found the successful Business Insider Publishing Group before becoming Chief Executive of Scottish Financial Enterprise, Chairman of Social Investment Scotland and Chairman of the James Hutton Institute, as well as many other roles. But you may know him better as the author of a gripping book about the 2008 banking crisis. It was called Hubris. How HBOS Wrecked the Best Bank in Britain. Plus, two more excellent books. One about the pioneering environmentalist John Lorne and one about the financial history of Edinburgh. It was a great pleasure to hear the tale of Ray's career to date. He's a natural storyteller and I really recommend listening to this episode. Ray Pearman, uh, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much. Where, where are you speaking to us from today? I'm in my study in my house in Edinburgh. Greetings in Edinburgh. I'm down in Gifford, down in, in East Lothian. Now, I've got lots of questions for you, Ray. I've got questions within questions, in fact. So let's start, as we traditionally do uh, in the series, with asking you about where you grew up, what family life was like, uh, and also I'm interested to to hear by the time you left school what were your your passions and what was your perspective on the world and the opportunities that it offered you um well to start at the beginning i was born in islington in london which in 1947 was wasn't the fashionable place it is today it was a very working class area um albeit with some some patches of faded grandeur houses that um, previously had been um, very upmarket and comfortable, but now we're in multiple occupation. But uh, my family lived in um, a thing called Samuel Lewis Buildings. Samuel Lewis was a Victorian or Edwardian, I don't know which, uh, moneylender. And like a lot of bankers of the time, used some of his surplus wealth to um, build housing for the poor, as he put it, alleviate the housing of the poor. So um, Lewis buildings were um, five long, as we would say in Scotland, tenement buildings, brick built. Um, they didn't have, the flats in them didn't have bathrooms. The, the bath was in the kitchen uh, and there was a wooden top over it, which... Uh, served as the kitchen worktop for most of the week. Um, They didn't have inside toilets. The toilet was on a sort of open balcony. But it was the first home my parents had ever had that they didn't have to share a toilet. Um, So to them, it was luxury. Um, And that's where I grew up. Now, my brother, who is older than I am and is a poet, Uh, wrote a few years ago a very moving poem about our early life in which uh, he wrote a line which absolutely shocked me. And it said, we knew we were poor because it was carved in stone. And I actually went back to look at the plaque carved in stone and it didn't say we were poor at all. Um, That was a piece of poetic license. But what 
what really stunned me was the accusation that we were poor because I never believed when I grew up that I was growing up in poverty, partly because everybody else who lived in the buildings was in the same position, so um, we had nothing to compare it with, but partly also because it was um, a happy household of my parents and my brother and my sister, um, and we never knew that we wanted for anything. I knew that we didn't have much money, but I never remember going hungry. My clothes were always clean and tidy, although some of them were handed down from my brother. I always had toys at Christmas, although some of those were handed down too, but uh, all in all, I had a very happy childhood. So what were your ambitions uh, uh, coming towards the end of school? Well, I I had sort of contradictory ambitions. Um, from a very young age, I was interested in history. And I used to ask for history books for my birthday and Christmas presents, and I'd still have some of them. Um, but one of my ambitions uh, when I was very young was to become what I thought was uh, a police pathologist until somebody explained to me that that actually meant cutting up dead bodies. And I, I, I then changed it to forensic scientist. I, I fancied the idea that, um, you know, solving crimes by using science. Um, so when I went to secondary school, we, we were actually rehoused uh, at the age of nine we moved from London to Hemel Hempstead, Newtown. And I went to two different primary schools there and then on to the grammar school in Hemel Hempstead, a very academic school. Um, but there I specialised in science. So uh, for a while I persisted with wanting to be a forensic chemist, but then later did physics and maths as my A-levels. And, and you went on to university, which, I mean, everybody goes to university now, but that presumably from your, your background, that was quite unusual. Well, my, my brother was the first in our family in, in Neil Kinnock's ringing phrase, you know, the first in a hundred generations to go to university. And he won a scholarship to Oxford. So it was a very hard act to follow. Um, he wanted me to try and get into Oxford, but I couldn't because... Um, uh, I, I want to do science. Oxford had dropped the compulsory Latin at that stage for scientists, but you needed two languages. And I only had one O-level in French. Um, so I couldn't apply to Oxford. But anyway, I remember telling him, you know, I'm too thick and too lazy to go to Oxford. And him shouting at me, Oxford's full of people who are thick and lazy, <laughs> um, uh, which I later found out. For myself. Um, so, uh, yeah, I applied to do physics and I ended up going to the University of St. Andrews to do physics. Um, and that was really a little bit of a trap because going to a Scottish university from an English school, I had done A-levels um, and A-levels were designed to uh, give you entry into the three-year degree course in English universities. But in Scotland, of course, there was a four-year degree, and the first year 
was very similar to the A-level syllabus. So I found the first year at university quite easy. Um, and when it came to the end of year exams, I just repeated all my A-level answers. Um, and I'd found it so easy that I began to develop other interests, um, in particular working on the university newspaper. Uh, and that took up more and more of my time. And when I went into second year at university, I, I really didn't realize that we moved on and it was getting far more difficult and demanded far more work. So I was pretty unprepared for the end of year exams and uh, didn't do very well. And I had uh, an interview with a professor who said, um, I think you'd be happier doing something else somewhere else, <laughs> which... Um, I had to agree with, really. So I left after two years without a degree. Um, and then because, partly because of my experience on the university newspaper and partly because my brother had already gone into newspapers and by that time was working on The Observer in London, I wrote uh, to some local papers and to the training officers of the big local paper companies. And... Uh, I received a couple of offers. It was a very different uh, work environment in the late 60s. Uh, and I started work on um, a weekly newspaper in Hitchin, Hertfordshire, the North Hertfordshire Express. I was there for about 18 months, I suppose, and then I transferred to the Oxford Mail. So the Oxford Mail was an evening newspaper. So I finished my training in Oxford at the Oxford Mail. I didn't didn't realise all that. So, I mean, my first sort of knowledge of you was through insider publications that you founded in Edinburgh. So how yeah. did you get from the Oxford Mail to doing that? Well, uh, the, the ambition of everybody in Oxford was to get to London. And um, uh, I was an education correspondent on the Oxford Mail. And then I went to uh, the Times Educational Supplement in London. And actually, as an aside... Um, one of the stories I covered for the Oxford Mail was the founding of the Open University. And uh, I went back after interviewing the chief executive, I went back to home and spoke to my wife um, and said, this is a fantastic organisation. They're going to educate people to university standard, you know, from scratch. And you can do it at home. And so we both signed up. Um, and uh, when I was commuting to London, which I did for about five years, you know, I was doing a degree course on the train on the way there and on the way back. So I eventually did what I should have done at the beginning. I did a degree in history with the Open University. Anyway, but that's an aside. So I was 18 months on the Times Educational Supplement, and then I, I transferred to the Times in London, this is pre-Murdoch, before Murdoch owned it. Um, and I was on the Labour staff. We were reporting trade union matters. And that was a very, very busy period in the early 70s, uh, mostly the Heath government, but then two elections in 74. We had two miners' strikes. We had Heath's Industrial Relations Act. There were constant disputes. I was working really hard. 
and getting my name in the paper, you know, very frequently. And it was a very exhilarating time. But I would leave home uh, quite early in the morning. My wife and I were living in a cottage in Oxfordshire and she would go one way on the train to work in Oxford and I would go the other way to London. And then I would come home quite late at night, most nights. And after a few years of this, uh, we decided this was no way to start a marriage. So we decided that we should get out of London. So I wrote to every daily paper in the regions of Britain. I didn't want to go back to weeklies or evenings. I wrote to morning newspapers. And I got a job on the Scotsman in Edinburgh. So right. in 1975, we moved to Edinburgh. Right. And... Uh, and you've, you've been here ever since? And we've been here ever since. I was um, nine months on The Scotsman. I have to say it was a real culture shock moving from London because I moved from a very intense uh, work environment to um, quite laid back and uh, in some ways gentlemanly organisation. But after nine months on The Scotsman, I got a telephone call from uh, a man that I used to share a flat with when I was on the weekly paper. And he was now on the news desk of the Financial Times. And he said the Financial Times Scottish correspondent's job is up for grabs and, and you haven't applied. I said, I didn't know anything about it. So he got me onto the shortlist. I was interviewed and I became the Scottish correspondent of the Financial Times, which in many ways was the best job I've ever had and I did it for six years. So what then led you to take the plunge in and set up your own business? Well there's, a, there's an interim stage in that. Um, after five and a bit years the, the FT got a bit nervous. Um, it doesn't like to leave people in post too long because uh, they get jaded, they get uh, repetitive and so it wanted to move me and it suggested moving me to Canada uh, where there was a developing story or a number of developing stories, political story with the breakaway attempt uh, in Quebec, but also an industrial story and an energy story with the tar sands in Alberta. Uh, and I did go to Toronto for a while um, and worked there and my wife came out and we actually looked for a house. But in the meantime, two things were happening. We we had young children, and my parents were quite elderly by then, and we were a bit afraid that the children would grow up not seeing their grandparents and that my parents would miss the early years of their grandchildren's lives. But the other thing that was happening was a new Sunday newspaper was being started in Glasgow by the group that published the Glasgow Herald. And it was a newspaper called The Sunday Standard. This is in the very early 80s. And it was being edited by Charles Wilson, who later went on to edit The Times. And he offered me the job of deputy editor. And every time I moved into a, a new hotel in Canada, there was a message saying, call Mr. Wilson. Uh, and eventually, my wife and I took a break from house hunting and we went to Niagara Falls and then afterwards we went and had lunch in a hotel in Niagara on the lake 
And I did call Charles Wilson back and I accepted the job back in Glasgow. So we didn't go to Canada. And I left the FT and uh, became deputy editor of the Sunday Standard, which was, again, a very exciting period. Um, setting up a new newspaper is always exciting. But uh, it didn't develop the advertising revenue that the management hoped it would, and it closed after two years. So in 1983, I found myself redundant. Um, the only jobs I was offered were back in London, and I didn't want to go back to London. And so uh, with a partner, I founded Scottish Business Insider magazine. Had you always had a, a sort of underlying desire to, to run your own business, or was it, was it just the circumstances? No, it was the circumstances. I, I mean, I was asked um, sometime afterwards to make a speech to um, one of the sort of entrepreneurial associations. And I started by saying, you know, some people are born entrepreneurs. You can imagine Richard Branson, he, you know, he never worked for anybody else, probably couldn't work for anybody else. Uh, and some um, have entrepreneurship thrust upon them, and, and I was one of those. You know, I was made redundant. Uh, jobs were elsewhere. Um, there was a great deal of goodwill towards the business pages on the Sunday Standard uh, because we had really changed the way in which business was reported in Scotland. Previously, the main business newspapers, the Scotsman and the Herald, uh, only reported on quoted companies. And they reported company results and uh, company announcements and so on. Uh, and that seemed to me to be a very short-sighted approach because 90% of the companies in Scotland were not quoted so they never figured in the business pages of the Herald and the Scotsman. Um, and also, we wrote about people. Uh, we did include numbers, but mostly we were interested in the people who made those businesses, what their challenges were, how they started the businesses, you know, their failures sometimes. Um, and that uh, built up a following in this understanding. We were able, after it closed, to transfer that goodwill to Insider, the magazine that we started. So tell us the story of, of Insider. I mean, it, it sounds like you got off to a reasonably good start. Was it? There must have been a few ups and downs along the way. Well, there, <laughs> there were. We, I mean, we started it with my redundancy money. Um, we were offered uh, some equity finance from 3i, then called ICFC. Um, but we turned it down largely because we were a bit afraid about losing their money. I don't know. <laughs> it was a bit, we were very naive entrepreneurs. Um, I was doing the accounts and most other things too. Um, and although in the first year I knew that we were losing money, I hadn't realized until we got accountants and they did our first year audit, how much we were losing. We lost 60,000 in the first year. Um, then in the second year, I thought we more or less broke even, which we did. And in the third year, I thought we'd made a profit of about 15,000. They told me, no, it was actually three or four times that. We made a profit of 60,000. So, yeah, we, 
it, there were some scary times, but we got through it and we um, slowly built the, the magazine up. Um, we made one or two rather naive decisions at the end, but it all worked out eventually. And so was the business um, throughout your, your time with it purely based around that the magazine, or I think Insider got into doing a customer well, we communication. Did, we, yeah, we did a couple of things. Um, the, we we established a magazine first of all. That was really our flagship and our calling card. Um, and then the Institute of Bankers, as it was then, Institute of Bankers in Scotland, now the Chartered Institute of Bankers, um, changed its chief executive and asked us to take over the publication of the Scottish Banker magazine. So we did that, and that was that was done on a contract. You know, they paid us a fee, and we produced a magazine for them, and, and that was good business. Then that led on to doing a magazine for Bank of Scotland for their staff, and that led on to another magazine and then another magazine. So we built up these two strains of business. One was our own publication, the business magazine, and the other was contract publications for other people. But um, during the late 80s, we decided to expand Insider, the, our own magazine, by going into the northwest of England, into Manchester. And unfortunately, we got our timing wrong. Uh, Britain was just entering a recession. But in Scotland, we hadn't really felt that so far. And so we launched in Manchester into the teeth of a recession, which was actually already biting in the northwest, although it wasn't apparent in Scotland. Um, and so we had a real struggle for a few years, uh, and eventually we had to withdraw. So what ultimately you sold the business to Trinity Mirror, what, what... What, how did that come about? Was it just a, a great offer? We, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, as, as I say, we expanded into Manchester. We, we had to withdraw from that, but I sold the Manchester business to the staff there. Uh, we'd also started because we'd been joined by uh, an old colleague of mine who was a personal pilot, a flyer, and he, he, he flew for pleasure rather than commercially, and he had persuaded to start a magazine called Flyer for personal pilots. And that was going quite well, but then he left to do other things. And it wasn't really part of the core business, so I sold that as well. Um, and, and that showed me a valuable business lesson, really, because by selling those two peripheral businesses, we were able to pay off all the, the borrowing that the company had incurred to do that get the core business back on an even keel and to concentrate all our activities on the core business. And so it was doing quite well. But it was by then 15, 16 years old. And uh, with my partner, Alistair Balfour, who, who had been the business editor of the Sunday Standard before we started the business together, we had reinvented this magazine three times by that. We, we reckoned that every five years, you know, you have to have a, a real rethink about who your audience is and what, what you're trying to give them. And we'd done it very successfully two or three times. 
we were running out of ideas and we were running out of steam. And then out of the blue, somebody popped up and made us an offer we couldn't refuse. Oh. We sold it. And then you moved on to become chief executive of the Scottish Financial Enterprise, which seems like quite a, a big change. You know, how, how did that come about and, well, there was, and how did you find that experience? There was an interim step, actually. Okay. Um, because at the time we were selling Insider, I by that time had sort of stepped back and I was non-executive director, although still the largest shareholder in Insider. Um, and... At that time, the management of the company which published the Glasgow Herald and the Evening Times, the same company I'd worked for 10 years, 15 years previously on the Sunday Standard, that company was doing a management buyout. It was owned by a conglomerate called Lonro, and the management bought the company from Lonro. And the management team wanted a development director, wanted somebody to help them with strategy and take the company forward. And so they, they approached me, and I joined that company in 1994. Um, and we we developed the company. I, I did strategy with them, but I also was the executive chair of their magazine division and helped them turn that round. And then in 1996, we attempted to float that company on the stock exchange, but uh, our largest shareholder got a better offer from what was then Scottish Television, became Scottish Media Group, and so the company was sold from under us. So in 1996, having um, turned that company round, we found ourselves, all the executive directors, found ourselves unemployed again. <laughs> Um, twice from the same building uh, is pretty good going. So um, I then saw advertised the job of chief executive of Scottish Financial Enterprise. It was a it was an industry I knew very well. Scottish finance. It was representing Scottish finance to the world, and it was at the time when the Scottish Parliament was just starting up, and so I thought there was a great opportunity both to watch the birth of devolution from uh, a privileged position, but also to represent the finance sector in Scotland to the politicians. And so I did that for four years. And how did you find that experience? Um, it, it was very interesting, very different uh, from today. Um, I could, with some justification, claim nationally and internationally that Edinburgh was one of the top 10 financial centres of Europe. We had two FTSE 100 banks, Royal Bank and Bank of Scotland. Uh, we had a, uh, a fund management business, um, which was among the top 10 in Europe in terms of funds under management. What was that? Um, well, the, 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 all the fund management companies put together. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right, yeah. So we managed more money than uh, mm. many capital, you know, more than Dublin, more than Copenhagen, more than Luxembourg, more than Frankfurt. Um, the only real people who could rival us were London, Paris, possibly. Um, 
and so that that was a very good business. And at that time, there was a thriving um, life assurance business, something like nine life assurance companies. Then after I left, I left in 2004, but, uh, you know, after that, we had the crash of 2008 with the two biggest banks failing. Then the takeover uh, one by one of all the life assurance offices. So these days, Edinburgh is a more diminished place than it was in financial terms in those days. And we'll come back to that in terms of your yeah. subsequent work as, as an author. But in the meantime, I mean, just looking at your, your profile on, on LinkedIn, you've had a, a plethora of other roles, such as, I have to take a deep breath here, a member of court at Harriet Watts, chairman of Social Investment Scotland, a board member of Scottish Enterprise, chairman of the James Hutton Institute, various other non-exec exec director positions. So what has been the attraction of taking on all these responsibilities? And again, any sort of lessons that you've, you've learned well, the, from, from doing that at Illinois? When I, I did, um, I was chief executive of Scottish Financial Enterprise for four years, a bit over four years. Um, and I had told the board from the beginning that I would do it for a minimum of three years and a maximum of five years. So, and I gave them a year's notice. It was right in the middle of that period. And they were very good um, and, and recognized that, you know, I wanted to, I'd done what I thought was a pretty good job there. And I just wanted to move on and leave the field free for somebody else to come in with fresh ideas. But I didn't want to retire. So um, I, I did a number of different things. Social Investment Scotland actually grew out of uh, my time at Scottish Financial Enterprise because at the beginning, the, the beginning of the Scottish Parliament when there was a Labour Lib Dem coalition government, the then Communities Minister, um, Wendy Alexander, wanted to push a programme for financial inclusion. And she had, I think, seven or eight different areas in which she wanted to make progress. And we worked with her in Scottish Financial Enterprise to try and deliver on those. There were things like, you know, getting ATMs, getting cash machines into the most deprived areas of the country. Because if you looked at housing estates in all the major cities, for example, they were very poorly served for ATM machines. And yet most of the families there worked on cash rather than on bank accounts. Um, there was the introduction of bank accounts for all. And we brokered a deal with the four Scottish banks at that time, including Lloyd's TSB Scotland, um, Clydesdale Bank Scotland, Royal Bank, to introduce um, basic bank accounts for anybody. Um, and that was in advance of those things happening in London. But one of the other things that Wendy wanted to achieve was an organization which would lend money to not-for-profit groups, for charities, for community groups, for people working in the public interest who were chronically short of funding, always reliant on grant funding, but spent most of their time and energy chasing the next grant. And so the idea was to try and put their funding on a more sustainable footing by providing long-term loan finance for them. Um, and we set up, again, with the 
with the help and active enthusiasm of the banks, we set up Social Investment Scotland. I became the first chair. We recruited a chief executive who was a retired bank manager from one of the banks. And that organization, I did the I was chair for six months, six years. But that organization has been going ever since. It is now coming up to its 21st birthday. Uh, it's expanded way beyond the dreams that we had at the time. And it's doing a really good job in the community. And what about some of the other things you've been involved in? As well, well? Um, the Scottish Enterprise uh, were looking for board members. And so when I left um, socially, um, Scottish Financial Enterprise, sorry, I'm getting mixed up. Um, I applied for and became a board member of Scottish Enterprise, which again, I was there for six months, uh, six years, sorry, two terms of three years. Um, again, very interesting. We were doing economic development. Uh, I was chair of the investment committee for a while. I was the champion of diversity on the board. Um, we were spending a budget at that time of something like 630 million. So we were making a big impact on the Scottish economy in one way or another. Um, I'm very sad to see the Scottish enterprise budget less than half that now, because I think it, it still does a very good job and a very useful job. So I did that for six years. Um, and I also invested in some small companies uh, and became chair of, uh, of a couple of small companies. And many other people know you through through the books that you've written. So uh, to my knowledge, you, you've written three. You wrote, wrote a great book um, about the, the collapse of HBOS, um, another one about the pioneering environmentalist John Lorne Campbell, and most recently, the rise and fall of the City of Money, a financial history of Edinburgh. So um, how, how do you find the, the writing process? I mean, obviously, you're a journalist anyway, but are you fairly disciplined in the way you approach them? And, and what inspired you t to write these three books in particular? Well, the, the, the first book was actually, uh, I didn't want to write it. I wanted to read it. Um, John Long Campbell, who, who was a remarkable man uh, who owned the island of Canna in the Inner Hebrides. I had met John way back in the 70s when I was a journalist. I'd gone to interview him about ferry policy. Um, he was an enlightened landowner. He was a self-taught Gallic scholar um, and great collector and preserver of the Gallic language. But he was also a doughty fighter um, for the rights of islanders against bureaucracy, mainly. And I was um, a friend of him. I, I knew him for the last 20 years of his life. And he died um, in... Uh, 1996, at the age of 90. And 10 years after his death, I sent a Christmas card to a man who had been my solicitor, but who also had been John's executor. And I said, who is writing John's biography? Because it's such an interesting story, and I'd love to read it. And he said, nobody is, but they should be. And I, I think I know who it should be. And it wasn't me, it was somebody else. Um, but he was approached and he said, no, I'm far too close to it. I, I don't think I could do a good job. And so it came back on me. And so I wrote that biography. And it was interesting because, as you say, I was a journalist. I'd been a journalist for more than 30 years at that time. I could write a thousand words on any subject 
you care to name at two hours notice, you know, whether I knew anything about it or not. So I thought, well, a book of uh, 80,000 words is 81,000 word pieces strung together. And uh, I spent a long time researching facts. And if I researched a fact, it went into the story, whether it was relevant or not. And one of the people that I interviewed um, to write that biography was a wonderful woman called Anne Bertolf, an American retired English professor. And if you go uh, Google Anne Bertolf, even now, you'll find her books on the form and language in the, uh, form and meaning in the English language. She was an expert on nineteenth um, century novels and English. And uh, I met her on Cana because she'd been a visitor to Cana since the 50s. And I was staying in a caravan at the time because there weren't very many places to stay. It was Midsummer's Day, freezing cold and pouring with rain. And she came to the caravan and read the first few chapters of the book that I had given her. And she just sat down and said, Ray, this is not how you write a book. <laughs> and so I got a tutorial from one of the foremost experts on how you write a book from this then woman in her late 80s, now in her 90s. Um, and and it, was, it was an eye-opener because it was so simple. She said, what you've got to do is tell a story. You haven't told a story. You put in fact, fact, another fact. <laughs> uh, what you've got to do is make everybody turn the page. Why should they turn from one page to the next? You've got to end every chapter so that they want to start the next chapter. And I thought, God, this is so obvious. Why didn't it occur to me? So I rewrote it. I sent it to Anne. I got back her seal of approval. And you know, so I, that's how I wrote the first book. Um, and then after the first book came out, and it's now in its fourth edition, after that book came out, my publisher said to me, well, what about writing something about the banks, because the banks had collapsed a couple of years before. Mm. He said, could you do um, both banks together? And I said, no, I, I think possibly we should do, do them separately, but I'll start with Bank of Scotland because that's the one I know best. So I wrote a book, Hubris, about the collapse of HBOS, which was the merger of Bank of Scotland and Halifax mm. Building Society, two venerable institutions, two institutions which really should have been safe as houses, destroyed by an inept and inexperienced management in seven or eight years. Um, I had intended to go on to write about the Royal Bank, but I was too late because somebody else did it before me. Ian Fraser got in there. Yeah. Well, I've, I've read them both, and they're both uh, very uh, excellent books. Um, could you? So, yeah, let's move on to the, the, your latest book. So, could you give us a flavour of some of the, the key themes in that? In in the rise and fall of the city of money. Um, well, that's interesting the way that came out. Uh, I had got to know over the years a man called Russell Napier, who I think you've already interviewed. Russell is a very unusual financier because he's very interested in economic history, and he asked me to accompany him on conducting a walking tour of Edinburgh 
for students at the Edinburgh University Business School. Most of those students come from outside the city. Many of them come from outside the UK altogether. And so the idea was to give them an introduction to the city, walk them around the city, show them the historic sites, but link it to the development of finance in Edinburgh. And so together we started to research that and then put together this walking tour. And we did it two or three times a year for five years, until the pandemic, in fact. Um, and it occurred to me walking around and telling these stories, some of which were really fascinating. Here's a book. Um, you know, there is no book about the financial centre of, of Edinburgh, how it started, why it started here, how it developed, how the different aspects of it developed. I mean, banking was first, how that led into life assurance, how that led into fund management, and so on and how Edinburgh built up its reputation, long, slow, gradual rise, all destroyed in two years, in 2008-2009. And you mentioned the library of mistakes there, there, Ray, and our paths have crossed it a few times. In fact, I saw you there recently interviewing Alistair Darling Mm. at the the reopening of of the library. For those that don't know, it's a wonderful place in Edinburgh that uh, exists to encourage the world to to learn from the mistakes of the, the past. Um, your book, Hubris, is certainly part of that collection. I've seen it in there and, and possibly your, your new one as well. How much do you think the Scottish financial world has learned from the mistakes of, of that 2008 global financial crisis? I think the Scottish financial world has learned a lot more than the government from that financial crisis. Um, Unfortunately, Royal Bank Scotland and Bank Scotland are no longer Scottish companies. I mean, they are nominally Scottish companies. They still have the name Scotland in the title, but they're both run from London and they're run from people who are not from Scotland. Having said that, both those banks have slimmed down considerably from the bloated size that they were in 2008, and they have learned an awful lot of lessons. Um, Some of those lessons I tried to point out in the book, in The Rise and Fall of the City of Money, were the same lessons which should have been learnt in uh, 1700 when William Patterson uh, tried to drive the Bank of Scotland out of business and should have been learnt uh, in uh, 1797 when Royal Bank nearly went out of business, basically lending to people who couldn't afford to pay it back and running out of cash. They are basic banking principles. And unfortunately, um, towards the end of the first decade of the 21st century, the bankers running those two organisations just lost sight of them. Having said that, I think um, the big banks in London have become much more cautious. Their capital cushions are much larger. But we hear from the government, the government of Boris Johnson, all sorts of noises about relaxing regulation on financial services and on banks and insurance companies in particular, and reducing the amount of capital which they have to keep against unforeseen circumstances. Um, I think that's very short-sighted. So I think probably 
the lessons might have been learned in finance, but I'm not sure they've been learned in politics. Now, uh, given that we've we've mentioned the library of mistakes, I've got to ask you, what, what do you think is the biggest mistake that you've personally made in terms of your, your business life? Um, I suspect uh, it was the move into Manchester with Insider. I mean, since then, I've made a few investments in other people's companies which have gone bust very, very quickly. But that's one of the uh, one of the risks of investing. And I think one of the lessons you learn as an investor is never to put all your eggs in one basket, you know, and, and don't invest in a speculative new company if you can't afford to lose the money, because often you do. Um, luckily, sometimes I've actually not lost my money, so it turned out okay. But when we moved into... Manchester, we were a little naive in not having researched the area and the economy more thoroughly than we did. And we made some mistakes um, in the way that we set up the business. But I also learned something from how we had to withdraw that, that sometimes it's not what you do in business, but what you don't do or what you stop doing, which is the deciding factor so when we stopped doing that, when we cut our losses, um, found how we could withdraw from that without too much damage and then concentrate again on the core business that we really started to come through. And I applied that lesson again. I told you that I was the development director of Caledonian Publishing, the, the buyout of the Herald in the early 90s, mid-90s. I was chair of the magazine subsidiary there, and that company had one very big and profitable product, which was the Scottish Farmer, which had practically saturation coverage of every farm in Scotland, and many in north of England too. But uh, the management had diversified into other things, into newsletters for hospitals. It was going to do a newsletter for every hospital in Scotland, um, I was a nightmare, um, and also into other magazines in which, actually quite good magazines, Scottish Field was one of them, uh, Climber magazine was another one, but they were peripheral to the main business. They were taking up a lot of management time and they weren't making any money. And I went to my first board meeting and I was accompanied by the group financial director. And he said to me on the way home, I calculate that we spent 17% of our time talking about the profitable business and the rest of the time talking about the unprofitable business. So pretty quickly, I closed the hospital magazines and I sold over time, over the next sort of three, four months, I sold um, Scottish Field to a company that could make more of it than we could. And then later, uh, uh, I didn't do it, but the successor management sold Climber again to the man who was running it, who, who actually made a great success of it. And in the magazine company, we concentrated on the core business, the Scottish farmer mainly, but we also had a little comp uh, contract publishing business. Um, profits went up from 600,000 to a million in one year. So it showed me that, you know, sometimes in business, it's not what you do, it's what you stop doing that's the important thing. 
Now, in terms of what you're doing now, Ray, I understand that you're um, a trustee for the Carnegie Trust for the Universities of Scotland, and you chair your son's internet radio station business as well. So what do these responsibilities involve? Is there anything else also that you're you're working on and any more books in the pipeline? Well, we, we glossed over the James Hutton Institute. When I left um, the board of Scottish Enterprise, I was approached by headhunters who said, um, we're looking for a chair to merge two scientific institutions. One was the Macaulay Land Use Institute in Aberdeen, and the other was the Scottish Crop Research Institute in Invergari near Dundee. And they wanted to merge, and their two chairs thought that they probably weren't the person to take over the joint operation. They needed an outsider, and, and so I was recruited to do that. And again, it was a very exciting but quite demanding task. I had a year and a budget from the Scottish Government to merge those two institutions. I had to recruit a chief executive, which was a worldwide search, um, and then get them together. And we, we merged them. We decided that it wasn't a good idea to just make up a name from the two individual names. So we did a competition among the staff to ask what we should call the new institute. And the winning entry was the James Hutton Institute. And I'd only vaguely heard of James Hutton up that time, but James Hutton was an Enlightenment figure, um, born in Edinburgh in the 18th century. And he's known as the father of modern geology because he published a theory of the earth, which was challenging all the received notions about how old the earth was. But he was many other things too. He'd been an improving farmer. He'd been an entrepreneur. He started a chemical company, which was really successful. He'd trained as a doctor. Uh, he was a chemist. He was all sorts of things. So he was a very interesting character. Anyway, I chaired the James Hutton Institute for six years. Um, and I'm still an honorary fellow of the James Hutton Institute. And then my publisher said, look, James Hutton is a really interesting man. His tercentenary of his birth comes up in 2026. Why don't you write a biography of James Hutton? So that is my task at the moment. I'm actually nearing the end of that. I've written it, but um, at the moment I'm compiling the index, which is a laborious but important and necessary job. Wow. Well, we look forward to, to seeing that uh, emerge. Question I always like to ask on this is if you could give some advice to the, the young Ray Pearman heading up to St Andrews University, what would it be? Don't go, probably. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think I, I was very young. Um, because of the, the, the time that I was born, the, the date of my birth in August, I had gone to school very early. I went, first of all, to nursery school at the age of four. And so I'd always been the youngest in my class all the way up. And, and when, I, um, when I was applying for university, I was 17. I was only just 18 when I went to university. I was very immature. I think I would have benefited for a year or two working and looking around before I went to university. But there is a compulsion at that age 
you know, you feel that if you step off the escalator, you'll never get back on again. Um, and uh, I think I would have benefited from having taken some time out and paused and thought what I really wanted to do. Well, funny enough, my birthday is the 30th of August and I was very similar, always the youngest in the year and, and, and very immature when I went to Aberdeen University. Yes, well, my, got a year well, my three sons, my youngest son, Bobby, um, who had two offices of places at university, passed up his places and said, no, I, I don't think I'm ready, I don't want to go. And I've respected and admired that decision ever since. It took real courage, actually. Um, mm. So, uh, yeah, that would be my advice to the young Ray Perman. Great. Well, we're going to finish now with five quick questions for a bit of fun. What's the first record you ever bought? Um, I've been thinking about this. I think it was uh, Folk Singer by Muddy Waters. I wish I still had it. I don't know where it is. Tell us something that not many people know about you. Um, that I'm a blues fan and I played bass in a blues band for 10 years. Did you now? In my 50s and 60s. In... No, no, in Scotland. All right. Still still play a bit of guitar? Uh, occasionally, yeah. But I've sold, the, I've sold the bass. If you could have represented your country at one competitive sport, what would it have been? I'm not very good at tiddlywinks, but it would have to be something like that because I'm useless at competitive sport. What is your signature dish in the kitchen? Um, I have very few kisses, uh, dishes in the kitchen because I was one of those... I'm of the age where boys were not taught to cook, and so I've come very late to that. But I can do a reasonable ricotta and spinach uh, risotto. Sounds good. I'm starting to get a bit peckish now. Yeah, you've mentioned that idea for lunch. Um, and finally, wh where is your favourite place in the world? Well, here's another long story. Um, in the 1990, early 1990s, my wife and I bought a derelict cottage with 10 acres of land, including a dump, an unauthorised tip, uh, a pond which had almost silted up. Uh, it didn't have a road. It didn't have main services. And it didn't have planning permission. Uh, and uh, we've been there ever since. We rebuilt the cottage. We drained the pond and dug it out. We got rid of the tip. Uh, we still don't have mains electricity. Um, but that is where we are happiest and where we hope to retire. So where, did you, where is it? It is in Milnathort. It's, it's just north of Kinross, oh, okay. 30 miles north mm -hmm. of Edinburgh. Right. Well, Ray, don't retire yet. We want some, some more books from you. And, and thanks so much. It's been really interesting to, to hear your, the story of your, your career so far. Good. Nice to talk to you, Fraser. Thank you. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.